Hello and welcome to Happy Place with me, Fern Cotton. This is the show that delves deep into the minds of people who might just be able to teach us a thing or two about our own minds. Today I'm chatting to Owen O'Kane. Many, many people struggle with shame. And of course then, shame teaches you to hide. Then when you start to tell your story, what you do is you can almost edit the story very, very carefully. So it's all about, I think for most people, the heart of most psychology is about protecting yourself, keeping safe, preventing anything from going wrong and making sure that you're accepted and lovable. That's kind of the narratives for most people. So when they tell their story, what they do is they try and match and think, okay, will that fit that narrative? Owen is a psychotherapist and best-selling author. He also happens to be a neighbour of mine. So he popped around, it was a very short journey, the other week with a bunch of flowers, lovely man, and a couple of iced coffees for us both. He's a complete legend. We had this chat on the hottest day of the year. So those iced coffees were very much appreciated. I've done some Instagram lives with Owen that have gone down an absolute treat, but I really wanted to have a chance to sit down with him and properly get into his brain. It is such a brilliant brain. We talked about, well, we talked about so much, but in particular how fear and shame drive us, what therapy actually is, and why it'd be so bloody great if we all had access to it, and how the chemistry of our brains can change through practices that can sound a bit wishy-washy, like gratitude. See, I told you, he's a very clever bloke. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. All right, let's do it. Here is the show. Well, here we are, Owen. Hello. Here we are. <laughs> Hot and bothered. Oh my God. The hottest day of the year. Yeah. We're in this tiny glass box in my garden, which absolutely. I do apologise for that. Okay. Your glasses are slightly steaming up they are the corners. Steam up, absolutely. And when we get into the heavy <laughs> stuff, they'll probably steam up even more. <laughs> but there you go. So just background for everybody listening. We're neighbours, which is lovely. Um, and I actually met you through your partner who works in TV and I've yeah. had some meetings with Mark. Um, and I've ditched Mark for you now. Absolutely. He's furious. <laughs> He's furious. But we've got so much in common. So it was no surprise we were going to connect and and have great conversations, which we've done previously on Instagram Live. But I wanted to properly get into things today and have a big juicy chat. So first of all, let's just talk a bit about your background. So you're a psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. You previously worked um, for the NHS in the mental health services there. And I know it's no coincidence that you ended up in that line of work. Can you just tell us a little bit about how your childhood perhaps has informed Yeah, what, how I got there. At? So I grew up in Belfast. I, I did a TED talk recently called Bombs, Bullets and Bullying. So that'll probably give you a clue about what my story was about. And long story short, it was all about fear, really. So I grew up in a 
part of Belfast called Ardoin, which was like a flashpoint for all of the rats. And it was actually when I left, I realized how scary it was. So I left in my early 20s, but I didn't realize that I was anxious until I left. Because when you're there and you're growing up in it, you just normalize it. The bomb would go off and you'd be like, all right, okay. I wonder where that was. And then you just move on. And that was reality for loads of people. But of course, I was, you know, I was, you know, I'm gay and I didn't know as a kid I was gay. But of course, you know, other kids work it out really quickly. I was playing piano, like show tunes, was a little bit quirky and, and that stood out. And of course, the other kids gave me a really rough time. So it was a lot of bullying, probably from my early teens right through. And of course, Catholic. So, I mean, it's a real, it's a lethal combination. Irish, Catholic and gay. I mean, that's a, that's a doctorate in shame Mm. in itself. So all of this stuff was going on really, which I normalized when I was a teenager. And then when I left, I suddenly thought there were two things really. I thought, God, I'm, I'm more anxious than I would like to be. And secondly, why do I doubt myself? All of it. There were two things. And I thought, why is that happening? So I ended up going to therapy in my early 20s. I was just coming out as gay. And the made a man said, you should go and see a therapist. And I went, OK, well, do you have any recommendations? And he gave me a recommendation. And when I got there, it was a nun oh, that I was God. going to get. I know, can you imagine? Not what you were looking well, for. I was walking in and I saw a convent and I thought, why am I getting into a convent? Yeah. This is all a bit weird. And I got there and it was a nun. And I thought, I can't tell her about you know, I can't tell her what I want to tell her, really. No, and um, no. so anyway, we got there and we were having a conversation. He said, oh, how are you doing? And I said, yeah, I'm good. And, you know, how was your upbringing? How was your family? And everything was fine. Everything was fine. I'm good. And there was this brilliant moment. And she stops me and she said, you keep telling me you're fine. She said, but you look sad. And you know one of them pivotal moments when somebody calls you out on something? My tears start in those Oh, moments. that was it. It was yeah. a complete emotional disintegration. Yeah. And I had nowhere to run. I was in her convent, literally, locked in the convent with this nun. And then it, that was it, really. That was the beginning of the story. And I thought, I started to tell my own story and make sense of it and put it together and think, okay, now I get it. Because, you know, if you've lived in fear and you've been told for a long time, you're wrong, you're sinful, you're bad, you know, as a person, you're less than other people. If that's the reinforced message you're getting, which is true for a lot of gay people growing up in cultures where it's, you know, it's difficult to be different. You can't rock up into adulthood feeling totally integrated. And I thought I could, you know, I was holding it together pretty well. But then I started to be open and truthful about it. And they are not led, I mean, very long story, I won't go into too much of detail, but I ended up in a monastery then for a couple of years, which is just completely bizarre, training to be a priest. And I did three years in it and loved it. I mean, I had the best three years of my life in the monastery. But, you know, celibacy was part of the deal. And I kind of thought my early 20s, don't think that's going to work out too well. <laughs> I'll ditch that one. I think I'll just leave that one be. So anyway, that, that didn't work out. And I thought, I'm going to go off and explore life a bit. Left the monastery and then trained to be a nurse and specialised in palliative care. Did that for about 10 years. Loved that work. I know it sounds tough, but actually genuinely loved every minute of doing that work. But one of the things I discovered in that work was that you can do all the medication and prescribing and all of that stuff. But most people had psychological distress at some level, either the patient or the family member. And I never really felt qualified or equipped to deal with it. So I was in the NHS at the time and they were promoting, basically they were giving you the opportunity to do, to do a master's degree. And I said, I'd love to do my in psychotherapy. Mm. And they were like, no, 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 you can't. You've got to do something relevant. 
And I said, but it is relevant. Yeah. And they said, but I want it needs to be more health. So anyway, they refused. And the person in charge at the time said to me, I want you to appeal. So I appealed and I had to then create a story about why I would do a degree in psychotherapy. And I said, look, if this is a big problem for most people, why wouldn't I be trained up to work with that? Anyway, long story short, they approved it. Did my master's in psychotherapy and then my career then went off in a completely different direction. So half of my career was in health, second half in psychotherapy. Did the NHS route, went as far as clinical lead, which was great. Loved the work. It was tough, really, really intense. I was running a large team. And then I started doing corporate talks in various bits. And I did a talk for BBC one day and someone said to me, why didn't you write a book? on what you do. Now, you know, when someone says to you, write a book, you think, yeah, yeah, that's maybe. It was Kenny on, it was in the background, but retirement, to be honest, not <laughs> not now, even though I'm not far off retirement, but anyway. No, you must never retire. Let's not, not talk numbers. So anyway, I then um, thought about this book <clears> and I got introduced to a publisher and about a year later from email and the publisher, they came back to me and they said, will you come in and pitch your book tomorrow? Wow. Can you imagine? So even though I had the content, I knew exactly what I was going to put in the book. I didn't have a title, didn't really have a structure. And a day later, I come up with a title, which was 10 to Zen, which was the first book. Beautiful book. Had a structure, went in, pitched it, and they they offered on the day, which was incredible. And then a whole load of coincidences. So Mark works in telly. He was working with Bev James at the time. And Bev was working with Joe Wicks and doing a project. And she coincidentally said to Mark, what does your other half do? And he said, well, he's a therapist, but he's just been offered a book deal. She said, what's the book? And then he told her the book and she said, God, I'd love to meet him. Wow. Anyway, I met Bev and then she said, I think we're going to pitch this book out to a few people. Hold fire before you sign your deal. And then we pitched the book out and the rest is history, really. It's, a, it's an amazing story and beautiful for loads of people to, to hear because... So often, and I'm sure you've found this in, well, I know you have because you've written about it in your new book, How to Be Your Own Therapist, about how so many of the thing, the reactions that we have as adults today or problems that we have, might even be diagnoses that we have, are acutely related to our upbringing, our childhood. Like you said right at the start, that constant messaging that you'll get will be yeah. different for everybody. For you, it was being gay and Catholic and that you were a sinner and you... Even if you think you've cognitively rejected that, there'll yeah, be a yeah. resonance there. It could even be physical and you carry that stuff around with you. Yeah. But to hear a story where you've not only overcome it, but you've used all of that to now help other people is huge. It's massively empowering. I think you got to. I mean, one of the, I mean, you'll know about this, you know, as much as I do. I think when you when you work in these platforms and you get the privilege of doing talks and books and all of that stuff. You've got to be brave enough to give your own story. Yeah. And I've really discovered that, that if you're not brave enough to give your own story, then you shouldn't be doing it. Mm. Because whatever you then deliver, and, and therapists, we're quite good at kind of creating a feel. You know, it's part of the work you're trained to keep a, you know, like a third wall. And I, I can understand why we do that. And at times it's really, really important. But I think for me, when you're in a room with someone, they're less interested in you as a therapist. They want to know, well, they want to know that you know what you're doing, which yeah. is really important. But they also need to know that you're a human being who gets what they're going through. Mm-hmm. Now, you can never completely identify with what someone's going through. But if you can at least empathize and say, no, I get this. And you can ally with the person in that suffering, then you're halfway there therapeutically. Yeah. 
So I think in my work and doing the books and talks and all the various bits I do, I think I have to tell my story, even though it's really uncomfortable. When I did that TED talk recently, I stood before I went out and you know what it's like. It was a big stage event. There was a lot of people there. There were cameras and all of that stuff. And I stood and literally just before I went out, I could almost feel my shame creeping in like an important, you know, literally I could feel it moving in to say, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. But the best thing to um, extinguish shame is to just say the story because it goes. Do you know what I do? And I do this all the time. Do you know When I get on and I was doing the talk, I told the story. Yeah. Because I think that's one of the most part. And I've got really, really used to it now because, you know, I think that's one of the things about therapy. People think that there is a resolution point and the point of being fixed and complete. And actually, I mean, it's completely nonsense, really. We're never totally complete. Nope. We're never completely together. We're always working through stuff. And I guess really the more work you do and the more you get to know yourself, then you uncover other layers. Yeah. And this is what I'm finding really fascinating, even in my own work. Every time I think I'm quite sorted, well, one, I worry because I think, well, from experience, experience, I know that's bullshit. (laughs) Something else comes along. So the more I get to know myself, then suddenly I discover this other part of me. Yeah, I think we all have, you know, we all have the different parts of who we are. Mm. And what I used to try and do when I was younger, the perfectionist in me would try and segregate them all and think, okay, well, I don't really like this part of me. So I'll kind of get rid of that or I'll push it away or I'll hide that part of me. The parts that I do like, you know, the part of me that's professional or the part of me that's warm and friendly, all of that stuff. Oh, I don't mind bringing that to the fore where I'm getting much better now at kind of lining them all up together. Mm, kind of yeah. say, these are all parts of me and I work with them all together at times. And I know sometimes that, like if I'm doing something big and my vulnerable side comes up, then I can acknowledge it and I can work with it, but I can also make a decision that that, that part of me can't be in the driving seat at that moment. Yeah, it's not going to rule you, but you're yeah. going to use I'm going the to work feelings with it. to connect with I'll other people. I'll use it, but I'm exactly. not going to let it drive me. Because I think going back to what you are just saying there about we're often looking for like, how can I be fixed? And then if we compartmentalise ourselves, we go, how can I fix this bit of me? I don't like that bit of me. Mm. Whereas if we flip that on its head and we reframe it and go, how can I use that bit of me? You know, what what is, where's the the, the wealth, the value in that part of myself? Because there always will be, whether it's connecting with others or what. I used to feel great, great shame very privately because I didn't talk about it, about having been bulimic for a long time. And I almost ejected the whole story from my sort of timeline and was like, it didn't happen. That was just, it was Mm. a no-go. And then I spoke to Elizabeth Day about it on her podcast. And as soon as I said it out loud, which was terrifying at first, I feel like nothing about it now. I I can use the feelings that I had around it, hopefully, to to talk about these subjects and to connect with people. But the the weight isn't there. It's a brilliant example. I mean, one of the things I talk about in in this next book is that your your power is your story. Yeah. And I really believe that fundamentally most people's power comes from their story. Yeah. But of course, what most people do with their story is they try and put it away or they try to hide it, or they try to minimise it, when actually all of the power within any of us as human beings comes from your story. So so how do we how do we get to the truth? Because with yeah, our story, yeah. and you talk about this in the book, with our story, we, we can go several routes. We can either go, like you were when you were in therapy the first time, yeah, my childhood was fine, yeah, everything was fine. fine. Or we can go, everything's awful, nothing ever goes right for me, yeah. this is what happened in my childhood, and you become a victim of it. So good point. how do you get to the truth of, look, 
these, these are the bare bones of what happened to me and I can see how it's informed who I am today. I'm yeah. not going to let it hinder me, but equally I'm not going to just paper over the cracks and pretend everything's fine. How do we excavate our lives to get that truth it's to fa- the forefront? It's a fine balance, really. And yeah. what, what I've talked about is uh, most people will instinctively, you know, when we meet for the first time or, you know, just looking at one of the producers, you know, you meet for the first time and what you'll often do is give the respectable version of who you are. Mm. You know, we all do it. I mean, it's just human nature. We all give the the rehearsed yeah. version. That's what we want people to see. You know, or even, you know, when we meet each other, it's just a quick, how are you doing? Yeah, yeah, great. Well, actually, most of the time, we're maybe not. But you're not going to start a conversation by saying, God, I'm really vulnerable today. Or, oh, God, I'm feeling really emotional. We're just kind of hardwired not to communicate that way. But I think what people learn to do with their stories is particularly around shame. Because I think shame is a big narrative for a lot of people. Yeah. Way more than we realise. Mm. I think a lot of people experience shame. And that doesn't necessarily have to be around sexuality or abuse stories. It can't even be around how you're treated in your family or around bullying. I think it can play out in so many contexts. That many, many people struggle with shame. And of course, then shame teaches you to hide. So I think then when you start to tell your story, what you do is you can almost edit the story very, very carefully. I'll give them. So it's all about, I think for most people, the heart of most psychology is about protecting yourself, keeping safe, preventing anything from going wrong and making sure that you're accepted and lovable. That's kind of the narratives for most people. So when they tell their story, what they do is they try and match and think, okay, will that fit that narrative? Mm. Now, what we know, of course, is that the opposite's true. You know, because often when we are truthful and honest and raw with people, that's when, you know, we're at our best and people will resonate. And, you know, I could come today and give you a, you know, a fluffy version of my story, but it won't land and you won't buy it for a second. So it's about, no. I mean, I think most of us know when we're in rehearsed mode. We just know it. You'll feel it on your skin, literally, when you're just telling the rehearsed story. And I think it's about if you're telling your story and it's bringing up stuff, and it's making you uncomfortable and, and it's making you feel a bit jittery. Well, then that's that's OK, but it means that you're probably quite close to the truthful version. Yeah. And you don't run from that. H- how do we move past shame? Because I've had large portions of my life where I've been really debilitated by it at one particular yeah. point. And it can be very difficult to get out of that loop when your worst fears then transpire again and again. So I remember a time where, like you were just saying, your reaction is to want to hide. And, you know, I'm probably still coming out of hiding to an extent. And I'm very lucky I get to do this podcast and I am, you know, I have a voice, I have a platform. I'm very, very lucky and I don't ever take that for granted. But I have, at, at one point, I stepped away pretty much entirely from TV because I wanted to hide, I needed to hide for that protection that you were talking of. And there were a couple of times where I thought, I'm feeling a bit braver. I'm going to put myself out there. Mm. I remember one particular, I think I've told this story before, but not in this context. I I was like, well, I'm going to try and, and do TV again. And I did a live TV thing and I stuttered on one of the first paragraphs. Yeah. And I had people mocking me and a, a paper writing about yeah. it. I literally just went, like did a stutter, like people do all the time. And I just went, oh, no, I, I, I should hide. Like, I should not ah, be out okay. here. It reinforced yeah, my yeah, own yeah, yeah. fears that I wasn't good enough. I shouldn't be there. I didn't deserve a place there. Yeah. And it set me back even further. So I wonder, are there techniques or ways that we can, 
you know, because it, it does take an amount of, of confidence and courage to get out of that that hiding. I think. Well, here, here's a um, it's a brilliant example. That what what I'd say is like if I were in a situation and I said, right, Fran, I've got this interview coming up. And, and I do the interview and I stutter and I get it wrong or it doesn't go as well as it could do at the minute. How would you respond to me if I said to you, God, I'm really concerned I screwed that up and I feel stupid? Oh, well, I would 100% comfort you in every way I could and say I'm sure it's going to be fine. But why would you do that? Because I believe that it isn't a big deal. And also I, I want you to feel good. I want you to feel OK. So what, what would be the struggle then with translating that? To your own internal world. This is it. We're so bloody horrible to ourselves. Yeah. We're so mean to ourselves. Yeah. That's the big problem, isn't it? And a I lack think of self-compassion. And that is the whole thing with shame, really. It, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's such a habitual. Yeah. And that, that, that's a really tricky thing about shame. It's quite sneaky. Yeah. And it's habitual. And that example is, a, is an amazing example of what happens with most people every day. You yeah. know, this kind of almost internal saboteur jumps out. Yes. Because it's all about, you know, perfectionism. What may people think? How am I going to be seen? What does this mean? Now, you and I both know it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> we all get it wrong. Jesus, some of the screw ups I've made along the way. It happens all of the time. And it really is about how you want, like one you recognize, OK, this part of me has come out. This part of me, the perfectionist, the saboteur, the judge, the critic, call it whatever you want. But I think for me, when I'm working with people is, I will get them to say, this is a part of you that's come out. It's not you. It's mm-hmm. not It's not a definition of you. This is not who you are as a human being. This is not the essence of your humanity. It's a part of your makeup that comes out from time to time. So it's about the recognition. Okay, this part of me has come out at the moment. I know exactly why it's come out. It's linked to early shame stuff or it's probably linked to other parts of my early story but I've learned the human brain has learned to respond in a particular way Mm. and your job really is to catch that really quickly I was saying to someone yesterday about it I visualise visualise it almost like a there's me stuttering now there you go perfect There we go. But I think it, this stuff makes you a human. Like, there you go. My granddad, Can Phil. Can we edit that, please? My, my granddad, perfectionist is <laughs> no, coming out. <laughs> my granddad, Phil, had a stutter constantly yeah. and spoke really quickly and had a real sort of Cockney accent. Mm. And we all just, it was the most endearing, be- like we yeah. just loved, I loved his stutter. It was my favourite. But I think because there is this um, overwhelming desire for all of us to be seen as perfect oh, these days... And that there's no room for any flaws. It's so toxic. Well, here's the thing. I probably got a really brilliant example. About a month ago, I was doing a talk and it was a big enough gig. There was a lot of people. And it was one of the biggest talks I've done in a way. Like everyone else, I've been off radar, you know, kind of doing public. Well, I've been doing internet stuff and online. But not real. But not in real events. And I had like three in one week, three talks in one week. So it was a big week and they were all pretty big gigs. And one of them had a, a sort of a sinus infection. And my throat was drying up. And when I was on stage, I could feel the back of my throat beginning to dry up. Oh, that's the worst. And it was a combination of my throat was drying up, but I had natural stage. You know, that first five minutes, you kind of dry up a bit. And that was okay. I knew what it was. But about seven minutes into the talk, I literally thought, okay, my mouth is now officially stuck together. (laughs) Like it was proper... There was no water. No, there was no water on stage. Oh no! And it was one of these events. You know when they count you down, it's like eighteen minutes, and the clock's ticking, and there's cameras and producers this and everybody. It's a bloody nightmare. So I'm stood there, and I could I could almost feel myself, you know, by the second disintegrating into okay, is there another word? 
available. Oh, no. Is my mouth going to open for the next sentence? And I remember standing there thinking, OK, I'm going to have to think really quickly. So I thought, right, I can I can continue here and try and work through trying to get words out through this <laughs> sinus infection. Or I can just be brave enough in front of all these people and say, guys, I've really dried up at the minute. I've got a sinus infection. Could someone get me a glass of water? And that's exactly what I did. Good. And and of course, somebody immediately came along and gave me a glass of water. I was absolutely fine. And then while I was there, I thought, you know something, I'm going to take this a step further. I'm going to say, and I said to them, this is a brilliant example of what can happen in everyday life. Stuff happens that we're, we're not planning or the perfect moment doesn't happen. I said, I had an idea today that this was going to go perfectly. The 18 minutes were going to run really smoothly yeah. and I was going to give you guys Good a brilliant talk today. And I said, seven minutes in and my mouth stuck together. Mm. And I've had the ask for water and I'm now having to tell you that some of the kind of voices of my own head were saying, oh my God, you idiot. Mm. What must I be thinking? So it's a brilliant example. And to answer your question about shame, in that moment, my shame had kind of almost come in. You know, it was kind of like, finds an opportunity. You know, shame will look for vulnerability and it will then slide through. And and I talked about that moment. OK, it finds an opportunity, it finds an inroad. But of course, the way to manage it is you don't let it take control. You shine a light on it. You know, somebody said to me, and I've heard this a number of times, shame can't survive in the light. In the light. So shame is often kept in the dark and yeah. that's where it flourishes. Yeah. So when shame is brought into the light, you immediately illuminate it and it finds it hard to survive. Mm. And often bringing shame into light is doing stuff like, OK, I'm going to allow you to be. I know why you're there. I'm not going to hide you. I'm not going to pretend this isn't happening. Now, of course, in that moment, in that particular talk, no one cared nope. that my throat had dried up. No one cared that, that it wasn't perfect. And actually, the moment I then said, OK, this is what's going on in my mind. When I finished the talk, the number of people who then come up afterwards and said, I was so glad that you said that. Yeah. Because the number of times I do that or I get it wrong or I'm presenting and I think, oh, my God, that's terrible. So that was probably the most helpful part of the talk. Well, this is it. Don't you think we'd all you know? be less exhausted if we just stopped pretending? I'm getting much better at it. Because we're all just pretending, aren't we? Well, that's quite liberating. We're pretending all the, all the time yeah. that we're OK and yeah. that we're dealing with life and that we're coping and we think, we always assume that we're the only ones that are feeling weird. So yeah, if yeah. I, say I have a guest on the podcast and I feel, and I've never met them before, mm. they could be very famous or very well respected. In my head, I'm going, they probably think I'm thick, I'm I'm this, I'm that. Yeah, but yeah. they could be thinking the same Absolutely. or Anushka could be thinking the same. My producer, any of us at any one time are probably having the exact same feelings. We, we, all, we get stuck in that. We all are. Look, I meet everyone in my work. You know, in my line of work doing what I do as a therapist, you you meet all of life. I mean, you really do. And that is one of like, the greatest privileges yeah. you can ever have. You sit down with people and I can have people who can be at the ultimate peak of success, yep. you know, unimaginable success, whether in sport or actors or pop stars. And there's nowhere else them to go, really. I mean, they've achieved everything. And I can sit in a room with someone and they have the same vulnerabilities, the same challenges, the same doubts as anyone else. Yeah. And I think that that for me is really, really powerful, actually, because I think often we're all doing this stuff. You know, we all assume that other people are having an easier time. Yeah, it's, it's dangerous to idolise people. It's really dangerous. It, it really, really is. And of course, look, I know you and I have talked about this before. We're in a culture at the moment where what you've got out there is the portrayal that everything's great. You know, you go on the Instagram. I mean, I do. Look, I think I'm a pretty grounded 
middle-aged bloke who's got a bit of common sense. <laughs> but I can go onto Instagram sometimes. You know, you're a bit tired or something. Oh, when yeah. you scroll through and you think, fucking hell, they're having a... Everyone <laughs> thinks they're having a bit more fun than I am at the minute. Oh, come on. I think about it all the time. I go to bed yeah. at half nine every night like a loser. Oh, God, and I'm me too. always imagining someone in a sunny pub garden having the time of their life, which is probably bollocks. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's talk about therapy specifically because obviously I, I've had loads of therapy and going back to an earlier point, every therapist I've ever had or people I still talk to now They've all ended up being therapists because of their backstory, which is deeply powerful. And talking about that sort of sharing and, and vulnerability piece. Wounded, I think it's called wounded healers. It's, it's the, the most beautiful thing. Yeah, it, yeah. You, it's so powerful. It's so powerful. But here, here are the problems with therapy, obviously. It's really bloody expensive if you're doing it off the NHS. If yeah. you're doing it on the NHS, you're probably on a huge waiting list. Yeah. And outside of, of that financial situation, it's also, there's still this weird stigma that exists. And we, we kind of think now, oh, we're all talking about mental health. Everything's really opened up. It, that is so far from the truth still. We're not and, there yet. You know, even like my mum, who's been on this podcast, who has talked to me more recently about her own depression, anxiety, yeah, yeah. OCD, other things she's experienced. I, I will sometimes have therapy if I'm, I could be feeling absolutely fine, yeah. but I want to check in with one of the people that I'm, I'm working with at that point in time. And, and I might say to mum, oh, I've just been to whoever. And she'll go, what's wrong? Yeah. And I go, well, I'm just processing some stuff yeah. and, you know, just to, so I keep feeling yeah. good. But there's still a stigma that, you know, there's got to be something terribly wrong that it that it, some people might believe it's a weakness to go and get help. Not everybody, but some people might. Yeah. There's lots of varying sort of ideas people have around it. So this is why this book is brilliant. How to be your own therapist. It does what it says on the can. It's giving us the the autonomy and the understanding to use these tools without having to spend all the money. I know you say in the book it's still important to go to therapy if you believe yeah. there's problems you can't deal with. It's not a replacement. But these are the foundations. Well, here here is the motivation behind it. I mean, The Guardian did a piece about a year ago and they estimate there's about 8 million people in the UK waiting for active treatment. Wow. Now, that's a lot of people. Um, and they did this in conjunction with NHS providers. Now, I know this to be true because I've worked in the NHS for, for most of my career. Wait lists are high. Yeah. There's a lot of people out. The problem is you've got what they call primary mental health disorders where people who have got, you know, kind of a bit of anxiety or a bit, you know, low mood issues. And then you've got the other side of the scale, which is more severe presentations where people are maybe suicidal or very actively psychotic. Now, here's the one thing no one's talking about. There's a middle ground. And that middle ground is most of the population yeah. who are actually really struggling with lots of stuff. And there isn't enough out there to accommodate this kind of middle ground. Where there's a lot Because, look, if you're anxious, you're never, you know, we often talk about disorders. And I hate that word, you know, anxiety disorders or mood disorders, because immediately the word disorder comes with, you know, it, like there's something wrong with you. Actually, you know, as a human being in your lifespan, there will be periods when you get anxious. There will be periods when you get low. So I just I talk more about the condition of being human. And I think 
what I've discovered is, and the motivation really behind the book is, there are so many people out there really struggling. So many. And I thought, right, well, I, I kind of know what I'm doing. I've been around for a long time. And this book, you know, no one's done how to do be your own therapist. When we did the research on doing the book, there's a lot of stuff out there. But most people keep the word therapy out of titles. Now, here's the, the truth. When I was thinking about the book, I want, oh, God, yeah, I want therapy in the title. You're thinking about the publisher and commercial sales and all of the pressures that come with publishing a book. And then I thought, if I actually don't include the word therapist in the title, I'm actually part of the problem. Yeah. Because I believe in therapy wholeheartedly. It's a bit like having a personal trainer. Everyone would benefit having therapy yeah. because we we crash land into adulthood, most of us, with no clue how to manage our mind or emotions because none of us are taught what to do with this stuff. So what I thought was, why don't I sit down and write a, you know, the first half of the book is like a crash course in what would therapy look like? How do you tell your story? Why do you tell your story and why is that important? How do you map it together? How does it explain who you are today? So I go through the fundamentals of basic therapy and I kind of take people through that. And then the second half is a kind of 10, 10 minutes a day. How do you self-therapy your way through the day? So I break it down into ready, steady and reset. That's three different parts of the day. Because what I've learned is that if I don't do this in my own life, if I don't get set up for the day, then the quality of my day changes. Mm. If I don't stop at some point in the day and work out, okay, what's going on with me today? Where are my thoughts at? What am I feeling? Where am I at today? It's like getting into your car, you know, without it, without having driving lessons. But when, it's great that you're like, you know, as a therapist, people often think, oh, well, you're sorted. You know it oh all. My God. But you have to do this stuff every day. Oh, my God. 110%. Yeah. It's part of the maintenance and, you know, true for any therapist. Yeah. You've got to know what's going on for you. And I guess really that's the power in the book, really, I think, because... You know, Senator, I don't know if I finished the story earlier about what, what I often think about is almost like getting into a helicopter. It's just going to sound really weird. It's going to make me sound posh. Like I've never even been in a helicopter. <laughs> I don't even know why I use the image of a helicopter. But it sounds my, glamorous. Let's it does. It. I think there's some grandiose notions in my part. But <laughs> when I'm struggling, what I do is I almost envisage getting into a helicopter. And what I do is I can almost visualize it pulling back. And what I do is I hover in this helicopter. So I'm looking down. So if I'm getting the moment I'm overwhelmed or things are a bit difficult, then I can look down and say, all right, I can see what's going on here. I wish I'd done that this morning. Fucking oh, hell. Someone really, 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 really pissed me off. Yeah. And I know the rule. In my head, I went, don't react now because it's not yeah, a great not idea. It. Yeah. I reacted immediately. Yeah, yeah. And get in the helicopter. Get, I should have got in the helicopter, in the helicopter and helicopter. just fucked off. Absolutely. I have my own pilot and everything. <laughs> At the ready. <laughs> And this is I what, love this. I'm keeping this analogy in mind. Honestly, I mean, it sounds really simplistic, but I use it all the time. And then basically when I'm hovering, I look down and I think, OK, what's going on with me today? Yeah. And I might think, OK, I'm a bit flat today or, oh, God, I'm a bit I'm more worried than normal. Or and then I'll stop and say, well, I haven't been for a run today. I haven't taken any time out. Look at the state of my diary. It's way, way too packed yes. today. But then here's the power. The minute you do that, the minute you can look in. Then you have the, the ability to kind of think, right, what can I do about this today? There are a couple of tweaks and adjustments I can make that make this feel more manageable. So essentially what you're doing is you're stepping out of overwhelm. And this is, I guess, where something, again, you talk about in the book in detail is really important, and that is flexibility. Absolutely. In, in that moment where you've pulled back and you've got a bird's eye view of how you're feeling and what the hell's going on around yeah, yeah. you, you have the choice to do things differently. Because like you said earlier, so much of this stuff for all of us is habitual. It's not 
because something's really, really awful or the same thing keeps happening. We're reacting in the identical way each time, but expecting a different outcome. So we have to be flexible. I mean, the neuroscientists are brilliant in this. They just talk about it replaying patterns. Yeah. And of course, you know, I know you've heard you talk about this before, but with neuropathways, the only way you change them is to change behaviours. Which is it possible? Neuroplasticity is completely... And psychological flexibility is all part of this. But, you know, therapy, when people think about therapy, they often think about talking. And one of the things I'm arguing about really strongly is therapy is not just about talking. It's one part of it. Therapy's doing. Yeah. You know, therapy is about who you surround yourself with. Therapy is the choices that you make in your life. Therapy is the boundaries that you create in your life. It's a whole, it's basically an overhaul of your entire life. So this book isn't a fluffy, oh, you know, just sit down and have a little talk to yourself and it'll all be fine. It's much, much, much more significant than that. Therapy should make you feel uncomfortable. Yeah. If you're in therapy or you're doing anything that feels lovely and nice and it's all, then you're not having therapy. Do you know what? That is I don't think I'd ever really given that a thought or or properly identified that feeling. But one of the most powerful therapies I've done, which is something I know that you also specialise in, EMDR, that is the most uncomfortable therapy Mm. I've ever done because I had to face up to stuff that I could barely say out loud that I didn't want to admit was true and I didn't want to relive it because it felt like it might be more real if I had to say these words out loud. But my God, I am now back driving on the motorway, which I couldn't do for five years, which is a long time sort of, you know, learn behaviour repeated again. Nope, too scared. Nope, too scared. And the uncomfortableness of the therapy shifted something. It changed something. So I think it is so important that if you are thinking of trying therapy for the first time or even you using these self sort of soothing or it goes more than that but the, these sort of empowering techniques well, getting started on getting that started you feel the discomfort and that you just sit with it and and it's not nice but you don't don't abandon it straight away it, you've got to go with it it's a brilliant point because it, it not feeling nice doesn't mean that it's wrong no and i think this is a one mistake because we're we're all kind of primarily hardwired to you know it it's got to feel good you know, we're, we're obsessed by feeling good all yeah. of the time. I mean, we've both written books on happiness, yeah. but both of our books, you know, it's not just about fluffy happiness. No. You know, it's 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 much, much more than that. And I think what we all have to get better at is when the other stuff comes in, the darker stuff, there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't mean that there is anything wrong with you. It doesn't mean that there's anything bad about you. It doesn't mean that there's anything terribly, you know, broken or damaged about you it just means that it's part of your humanity and the more you learn to start working with that stuff and I know it sounds cliched but that's where the real magic happens because if if we think something's wrong then we run from it yeah and of course with emotions particularly darker emotions we think that they're wrong but actually they're not nothing terrible is going to happen I see them as like a, a signpost difficult feeling comes up you know instead of running from it I you know I think all right I'm going to be curious about what's happening here yeah. What's happening here at the moment? And I'm learning, you know, every day I'm learning, even in my own journey, about that openness around, okay, this is absolutely fine. Because I think what most of us do is we get immersed in the story. So if we're feeling fearful, we're feeling low, we're feeling anxious, whatever the context might be, we then connect that to the narrative, the shame narrative, and then that becomes, I'm rubbish, I'm not good enough, I'm crap, whatever the context might be. When actually, that you know, you need to learn to segregate the two. Yeah. These emotions, these thoughts that are coming up, they're not definitions of who you are. 
They don't define who you are. What they are is they're simply patterns that are playing out over and over and over again. And the incredible thing about good therapy is it will help you see that you can disconnect more and more and more from those narratives and not, and then kind of disidentify with them. And then when you learn to do that, I mean, Christ, if I had to listen to the core message of my early story, I'm not sure where I would be today if I'm been really honest. You know, if I had taken all of my story as a given, some of the things that were said to me or some of the experiences over the years, if I had to believe them as a truth, then I'd have been in trouble. Yeah. Whereas thankfully some part of me knew, and I still don't know where that come from, there was, there was a part of me knew that it wasn't right. Yeah, it, that resonates with me massively. Obviously we've got very different stories, mm. but listening to you speak there, I can see in my own life that when I've been told by lots of people, because yeah, yeah. that's the nature of my job, yeah. that I'm a piece of shit, whatever, there was a moment where I thought, I'd, uh, and I agree, I think, you know, I, I equally could look back and think, I nearly stopped doing all of this and yeah, didn't yeah. do this job anymore. I don't yeah. know what the hell I'd be doing or yeah. how I'd be paying my bills. I have no clue because I've got no backup. It's not like my mum and dad are going to, yeah, yeah. you know, fish me out of trouble age 40. Yeah. I don't know what I'd be doing. But again, there was something there that stopped me from giving up. Yeah, yeah. But I do wonder, I'm always a little bit confused about confidence in the context of this, because for you to do what you've done and to turn your story around, for me somehow to continue what I'm doing, there has to be a level of confidence, but I know there's still a big puzzle piece missing for me. And I sometimes wonder, do you do you have to find the confidence to reject all of those comments, the, the story, or do you have to reject the story to get the confidence to then move on? Good, I, I don't really know really, how it works. It's a good question because I, I, I don't think it's like a, a magic wand of, you know, okay, I'm now just going to stand up to it and I'm, I'm going to believe that I'm good enough, you know. We hear the expression, you know, about being good enough and trusting yourself and all of that. And and they're lovely concepts and they're lovely notions. But actually, you have to learn hard to do that. And I think if you think about neuroplasticity and psychological flexibility, all the things we talk about, <clears throat> when you're in trouble with those and when they're not functioning well for you, it's basically because you've been hardwired and programmed to function and think in particular ways. Now, so you've been programmed to respond and think and react in particular ways. To undo that, what you then have to do is you have to replace the kind of the information you've been given with with the opposites, basically. And that means that you do that on a regular basis. So is it fake it till you make it sort of thing? Not even first? fake it till you make it. It's kind of almost the going with that knowing, okay, you have to get to that point where you identify. And it's a bit like if someone's in recovery or something, they've got to get to a point where they realise that their way of acting and behaving doesn't serve them well. Yeah. So I think even before you get on to the making changes, you have to be able to sit down and identify, okay, this way of responding and reacting doesn't serve me well. So you need a pause. So it has, it has to be. There has to be a moment of stopping and reflecting and thinking okay if I end up in the same place over and over and over again then something isn't working right yeah and I think that's really really important it's because quite humbling that isn't it it is it's really hard because I think what people do is people just keep going and plowing their way through I'm going to get through I'm going to make it I'm going to feel better I'm going to recover actually no you've got to stop you have to have the courage to stop and think okay why am I ending up in the same place over and over and yeah. over again now here's the hard thing about that because that means that you Every have time it gets harder well no the hard thing Fuck. no but in a really exciting way <laughs> okay. because the hard thing is that you then have to take responsibility for the fact yeah. actually this is down to me 
Yeah, you do, which is why you've written this book. And that's the bottom line. I and know. That, that for most people, like every client that I meet. Because we want to blame other people well, or, of other, course, or the situations. Or it's the easier. therapist. I mean, Christ, the therapist gets to blame a lot really? as well. And people like people want the therapist to fix them. Yeah. And, you know, I, I joke if I'm supervising another therapist, you know, that the first couple of sessions in therapy can be re- like a wrestling match. Mm. It really can be. You know, they want you to change. You know, you. I've heard great things about you. You helped my friend. Yeah, I may have done and they may have done a great piece of work and they may have the most incredible life going for them now, but they've worked hard. But you say that in the book, you say you say something like, I'm not going to change you. Like, yeah. I'm not here to change you. This and is I, your work. And, I can, and even today, and we were having this incredible conversation and anyone listening to the conversation today might resonate a lot with what we're saying today. And I'm sure they are at many different levels. But what I'd say is the resonation, you know, it's, that's not enough. It's about stopping to think, okay, what is it that you're doing over and over and over again? Now, that's not to minimise because I know that people have terrible things that happens in their lives. They do. People have stuff that is unimaginably painful. So it's not to discount that or minimise that. But I think one of the hardest things for people to admit and come to terms with is that sometimes that they over-identify with their suffering yeah. and they become attached yep. to the suffering. It almost becomes part of the identity. This is ringing so true for me, and I, I don't want to be too self-indulgent, but just no, to no. to give my own example, because I totally hear what you're saying. When I, I had, a, obviously, a, a period where life made no sense to me, and I was yeah, feeling yeah. very discombobulated because of specific things that had happened, which I still identify with way too much. Yeah. And it can spill out into all areas of my life, but one which is so obviously linking to what you're saying is I can easily push myself too much at work and overwork and tip into, I fill out my diary too much, I try and do too many projects. Now, that might all look positive and is celebrated yeah, in all yeah. the world. Oh, yeah, wicked, keep yeah, doing, yeah, you're yeah. doing great. Or people might be like, stop moaning, you're lucky, you've got loads yeah, of work, yeah, yeah. you'll get differing reactions. But that's aside, I put too much in. Because I feel a lack of self-worth, unless I'm pushing myself to my absolute max. Yeah. And then every month, once a month, I feel totally overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah. I spiral out. I can't see the wood for the trees. I'm just all over the shop yeah. and think, that's it. I want to quit. I yeah, can't yeah, do this yeah. anymore. I do it every... It's so yeah. boring. I do it every <laughs> month. And I go, why, why have I done it again? Yeah. And, it, I, and I know, like as much as, as, as Jesse might say to me, just don't put as much in your diary. That's not enough. I need to go back to this place over here and go, my self-worth is pretty shit because of all this stuff that yeah. I need to stop identifying with. Yeah. Or it might even be more primal than that. It could be yeah. that part of the drive is, you know, that, you know, because I think when you're self-employed and you're doing what we do, which is a lot of independent <laughs> work, you yeah. kind of feel like, God, oh, i got to keep working and i got to keep doing yeah. stuff. But they're all fear-driven narratives. Mm. And I think that is the important thing is like so many of us are driven by fear. But that's not even our fault. Like our society is yeah. driven by fear. Yeah, of course The it news, is. advertising, everything yeah. is fear based. Yeah. We're all in that. You know, we're all in it. And I'll, I'll probably actually be part of the problem at times with the things I'm saying or yeah, whatever yeah. I'm doing at work. But our whole structure is not like our structure is built on hope. Like be, And we've all experienced Beautiful, miraculous things happening. We've yeah, all yeah. seen. We were talking about it earlier because you asked about my kitten who's at the vet today. He's very poorly, and you were saying about your dog years ago, who's sadly no longer with us, yeah. but that she was written off seven or eight yeah, times yeah. and she yeah. kept surviving. We've all experienced amazing, miraculous hope, 
but it's not purported on a societal level. We're mm. told, be scared. Like, I saw this advert oh, yesterday no. even about driving on the road and it was this big fear-mongering thing about how you could crash. It's like, how about you might not? You yeah. might not, you might have a great day. Yeah, like, yeah. everything is... Um, and it's subconscious. We don't even know it's there. So I think we're imbibing that and applying it to our personal lives without even knowing we're doing it. It's, it's a good point. And you know, I was really lucky. So that those 10 years I did in palliative care, I know we talked about this a bit in the live, but I had 10 years of my life where every day I was working with someone who was dying yeah. or with their family. And very often it could be younger people, 18, 19, given a hideous diagnosis or middle-aged and people with kids and all sorts of awful stories. And when you're doing that every day for 10 years and you're working with people and families and, and you're watching these stories unfold, I mean, you can't not do it and be on. You know, you can't not be affected by what you're hearing and seeing every day, but not in a negative way. And I think that was the thing that really struck me when I finished that part of my career and went on to do different stuff. It was almost like on a daily basis, on a regular basis, you were being reinforced and reminded, actually, life is really about fullness. You know, we are not put here to suffer. Mm. You know, we're not put here to be miserable. We are here to live fully. And of course, I would be with these people and they would be in the most terrible circumstances, but often they were digging deep and finding hope. You know, and then suddenly all of this wisdom that we try and search for and acquire, they were like finding. And, you know, I'd be set sometimes. I worked in the hospital, you know, I worked in hospital community and hospices in various um, areas over the years. But I can remember this one guy. He was probably 32 or something. We were probably around the same age at the time when I was working with him. And it was like three o'clock in the morning. You know, we were doing it. I was on a night shift. He was awake. The guy probably had about three, four weeks to live, you know, and we were we were talking. He was in for some symptom management. And him and I had this conversation and we were talking about all sorts of stuff. And he wanted to go to your festival and we were trying to get him well enough to go to the festival with his mates and it was going to be his last trip away. And him and I talked for probably a good hour, you know, at three o'clock in the morning. And he was just talking. All he focused on was the things that he wanted to do. Mm. Getting to the festival, you know, hard work didn't matter anymore. And it was really interesting. And I think inadvertently, he was giving me all of this wisdom mm. about, you know, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. You know, all of the stuff that we get preoccupied with all of the stuff that we get submerged in. Actually, when you have 10 years of reinforced messages with people saying it doesn't matter, yeah. it's short, don't get caught up in this stuff. And I know we can read these on cards and we can read them in stories and stuff. But when you're in that world every day and then the person's gone and you've built up a relationship with them and you've had thousands of relationships that suddenly come and go, come and go, come and go. It really taught me about actually whatever's going on in my life today if it's difficult, it's fine, it'll go. Because it always does, you know, if I reflect on tough periods, think, okay, well, that was a, a rough patch, but it went. Yeah. And that continues to happen. And I think what we were talking about earlier, that attachment to the habits and the stuff, it's learning to, I can let go of that. Yeah, and, it's letting and, go. And there's real power in that. And, and of mm. course, it takes courage. It's like, you know, yeah. if you're teaching your kids how to swim or... I'm teaching the dog to try and do something new. I mean, at the beginning, it's really, you know, there's that fear. Oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. You yeah, know, you're we, white knuckling it. Yeah, yeah. Stay, stay with what I know. I'll stay with the familiar patterns. And even the stuff that we do, you know, we're saying earlier that brilliant story about God every month. And I end up back in the same position. It's because we do what we know. Yeah. When actually, but if we also know that that doesn't serve me well, 
then that's where you dig deep and think, right, enough of that shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to move on. I'm going to really go for an alternative and I'm going to start to play around. And I think, look, this book talks about this as well. We just all need to get much better at being a lot more curious, a lot more adventurous. We all need to take a lot more risks because we're, we all do the opposite. You know, we, we play for yeah. safety. We play for security. Yeah. We, we show up you know, trying to minimise rejection or hurt. And I think actually that limits who we are. No, it absolutely doesn't. It's so beautiful to hear, you know, and I've I've read about them in your books, you know, these stories that you would hear when you were working in palliative care. You know, that message is so powerful Mm. um, and we, we all need to take heed of it, every single one of us. But I think sometimes, again, modern day culture has taken hold of that beautiful concept and warped it into something else entirely at times. So now you hear all these phrases that I can't stand, like living your best life and all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, what, what does, does that, that mean? mean? Yeah. Like, what, what mean? is that? Because it's not the same for everybody. And we've now created this sort of weird visual of you look a certain way, yeah. you're doing a certain thing, you're living a certain lifestyle. And yeah. that then means that you are living your best life. Yeah. But living my best life might be quite small and quiet or it might be changing my whole life entirely it's not one thing so I think we have to also be careful with how we receive that message because we have to make it work for us rather than feel like we're falling short because we're not doing what everybody else is doing absolutely it's about that kind of going inwards more isn't it I mean I I did a thing a few weeks ago in Dublin it was lovely it was a really good event and stuff we went down with champagne and it was all lovely and stuff and it was great and then I came back and um, the next evening, myself and Mark and the dog just sat in Richmond Green eating fish and chips. Heaven. I couldn't have been happier. Heaven. I mean, I really couldn't have been happier. So the night before in this kind of glitzy, champagne you know, it was a book thing and it was lovely and it was good fun and stuff. But when I compare the two, yeah. just sitting eating fish and chips on the, the green, yeah, it was just like that for me was like, Give me that any day, to be quite honest. For all of us, we know that it's that stuff that nourishes us. But it's about what we buy into. Yeah. And I think it's about, you know, learning the, you know, look, we all all do it. I was talking to to Jake the other week, Jake Humphreys. Jake. And we were talking about, Jake talks a lot about performance and high performance and stuff. And, you know, what what, what makes is, you know, about achievement and success and stuff. And I think, you know, like we all have two versions of that. We have our dysfunctional version. Yeah. Which is the doing more, achieving more, being seen as more, all of that there. And that's the dysfunctional version. But that, I mean, is that we're, we're kind of connecting all of that to the, the insecurity stuff, the not good enough stuff, you know. Mm. So it's all the compensatory stuff. And you know when you're operating from that mode because actually you don't enjoy any of what's going on at the time. Yeah. So you can have a bestseller or be at the top of your game. But if you're driven by the dysfunctional stuff, none of it will feel good or exciting or fun. Mm, just won't touch the sides, Doesn't will touch it. it. And Doesn't. you know what else I, I really want to talk about? Because I think it's very important because it's, again, uh, it's a notion that gets thrown around very haphazardly. And you talk about this in this book. Um, and that is gratitude. You know, mm. we're all, again, it's heavily sort of it's a bit fluffy isn't it be grateful and everything will be fine but you talk about the complexities like all things with gratitude Mm. and you know I think we've all experienced this and I've probably even said it to my own kids which is highly regrettable that you go yeah but think about these kids who have got nothing or and you had that at certain points in your therapy where you were told yeah but there's people worse off than you or whatever that is not helpful there's feeling grateful 
on a, on a true level, but yeah. then feeling grateful because you shame's been applied and yeah, you yeah, feel like, yeah. well, I should feel grateful. That is actually just not validating what you're actually feeling. Yeah. So we've also got to watch gratitude a little bit. I think any of these concepts you've got to watch them because I, th- I think if you're you're told to be grateful or you're told to be compassionate. <laughs> this brilliant example I'm thinking of. Um, I was talking about self-compassion in the NHS when I, I was doing this group and it was an anxiety group. And one of the sessions we did was about 20 people in the group. And I was running this particular group. And um, we were talking about how to access your own self-compassion with working with anxiety. And the group were doing brilliantly. They'd, we'd really, you know, it was a really amazing group of people who had worked hard and there was lots of breakthroughs going on and they were really learning to deal with their anxiety better. And we were then integrating this compassion notion. And um, this woman came back one of the weeks and she came back and she said, I'm doing all this compassion shit, but none of it's none of it's landing. <laughs> and I said, all right. I said, um, what do you mean it's not landing? She said, well, I'm saying all this stuff. I'm thinking all this stuff and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing all of this stuff. And I said, but it just doesn't seem to be working at all. I don't get it. And I said, can you give me an example? And so she said, um, oh, yes, yeah, so I got up this morning and I thought, right, I'm going to be really good to myself and I'm I'm going to tell myself this and, you know, I'm going to reflect it anyway. And I said, OK, I said, before you go any further, I said, can you tell me what that sounded like? She said, well, what do you mean? And I said, when you're saying all of these self-compassionate things to yourself, how does that sound? Can you say it out loud? And then she started to say out loud all these affirmations that she'd been reading in a book. She sounded like she was going to kill someone. <laughs> <laughs> so the rest of the group were like pissing themselves off. And, I really love and value myself. <laughs> you are lovable. <laughs> you know, and I said, doesn't sound like you are. No. According to, and she said, she just stopped. And it was this amazing, like I've one of these kind of career moments. You think, bloody hell, this is it. She just stopped and she said, oh, my God, I'm saying all this stuff and I'm doing all this stuff. She said, I'm not not meaning or connecting to any of it. And there was just like silence in the group. Just the entire group just went quiet. And I said, all of this stuff is meaningless. All of it. The techniques, the language, the doing it. It's meaningless if it's not connected to your tone that means something. You know, like if you were having a tough day and I come up to you and I just give you a load of platitudes, you just wouldn't buy them. Nope. Whereas if I come up to you and I sit down with you and I mightn't even do anything, I mightn't even say anything, but I'll just kind of say, do you know something, it's all right. We'll be fine, we'll get through this, it'll be all right, I'll stay with you, we'll work it out. Immediately you will start to soothe. Mm. And this is the one thing that doesn't get talked about enough is we don't talk about our tone towards ourselves. And I can't say how important that is because nothing in therapy will change you unless you change your tone towards yourself and that gets missed so so often there are, so there are people out there today doing all of the stuff and they're meditating and they're doing the yoga and all of that there and they're, they're still like fucking hell I, I still can't get it I'm still not working it out and then you stop and say what What does it sound like mm. and then they just pause what do you mean what does it sound like and then say, just just talk and then you hear the tone and you think it's a bit ferocious <laughs> yeah yeah because it's all you become know? quite prescribed all of this stuff mm. within the commercialised version of when you're talking about wellness or whatever it is but if you haven't got like the reality of it in your gut and the tone that follows organically without thought without it being contrived yeah. it's just not going to do anything and some people might be saying but how do you find that tone it does almost become an adamant refusal you know when you hear that ferocious internal voice it's about the courage to stop and say we're not doing this today yeah 
whatever happens, we're not doing this today. And you go back over. We tell ourselves stories about how things should be. I don't know if I told you this before, but I did this really intense mindfulness meditation teaching course with Oxford. And um, it was really hybrid. <laughs> it wasn't like a little course. It was proper full on mm. intensive training. And I went on and I was determined I was going to be a good mindfulness teacher. You know, the, the perfectionist. I mean, even that in itself is a clue <laughs> that this wasn't going to go very well. And I got there and it was just like, it was my worst nightmare, actually, because even before I'd started, I just kind of thought everyone looked calmer than I did. Yeah. And everyone looked a bit more meditative. Oh, and, he's so zen over there. Look at him. And there were mats and shawls and oh, all sorts. Shawls. There was all sorts of stuff going on. And I rocked up in my hoodie. And I was in this meditation and I thought, oh, God, this isn't going to go well and stuff. And I could feel my competitive meditator coming out as well. And I just I, I found myself getting myself into a complete state over this. Anyway, so one of the, I had this brilliant mentor, Melanie Fennell. She's kind of like one of the revered people in mindfulness in the UK. And I was really lucky to get into her mentorship group. So we were doing this meditation one day. It's like a 45 minute gratitude meditation. And we're sat there and there were about 25 people. This was like day four into this. We were up, up at six in the morning, 10 o'clock. And it was hardcore, hardcore. I think it went on for about 20 days or something. But this was like day four of it. And we're sitting on the mat and I was determined this was going to be a perfect, perfect meditation. I was going to, I was determined I was going to be up there with the meditator. I was going to have a shawl by the end of this. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be knitting shawls by the end of it. So anyway... This was all going on. And I sat there 10 minutes into the meditation. The guy beside me was breathing too heavy. Oh, I really, man. you know, you think, oh, God, I really, really want to smack you. You're really irritating me. Then the door banged. Then I was looking around me, the woman opposite me. She was kind of like perfectly poised. I was like hunched over. I looked like I was going to collapse in the floor. I mean, it was just spiraling out of control. So anyway, 30 minutes into this meditation, there was no meditation as far as I was concerned. I was absolutely in my head. So anyway, I went to the the coach, the mentor afterwards, and she said, oh, how did that go and stuff? And I said, I think I'm going to give this up. I said, I'm just going to be really honest with myself. I think I'm kidding myself, really, about this whole meditation teacher thing. And she said, why? And I, so I talked her through and she said, OK, let's talk through what happened. So I talked her through from the beginning what was happening in the meditation. And she stopped and then she said, God, that sounds like was an incredible meditation. And I said, well, it didn't feel incredible. And she said, Who, well, whoever said it had to feel incredible. Mm. And she said, you were very aware of all of the things that were going on. You were aware of your anger. You were aware of your resentment. You were aware of how unsettled you were. You were aware of your competitiveness, she said, your competitive nature. She said, what an amazing meditation. Your meditation was teaching you. Wow, that all, great all, mentor. I love that. All that was doing for you was creating more distress. What an incredible lesson. So she said, your meditation was pointing out to you that these don't serve you well. Mm. She said, that was probably one of the most powerful meditations in the group. Now, apart from loving the moment that she had validated, it was the most, <laughs> you know, suddenly I was up there with the meditators again. <laughs> but once I got over that moment, yeah. actually, it was life changing. That actually, even stuff like mindfulness and meditation, and again, there are words that are bandied around. Yeah. Gratefulness, gratitude. And synonymous with being all compassion, peaceful and floaty. We, 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 it's not. It's not about that. You know, gratitude in itself is about literally, it is about making the decision, okay, this is not perfect today. I'm not perfect today. Things are not the way I'd like them to be today. But I am going to consciously find a few things today that, okay, 
you know, I'm, I am grateful for. And that might be really, really simple, like, okay, well, look, I'm grateful that I've food on the table today. Could be really simple. I'm grateful that I was able to take the dog for a walk. I'm grateful that I can afford to go out and get a nice coffee on the way here. Now, there are simple things, but here's what people don't realise. The chemistry in the brain changes, and this is where we start to move outside of the, the fluffy stuff, because even that act of moving the brain's cognitive processes into a different area means that you activate different parts of the brain. And of course, the moment you then light up other parts of the brain, you get chemical changes. So, you know, you then do start to, you know, release more endorphins, more encephalin. So even though it might feel like a really fluffy concept, you then get the biochemical changes that go on. And then suddenly that inadvertently has quite a positive impact on mood. So even though we talk about it very wishy-washy and these concepts are thrown out there, gratitude, self-compassion, self-care, the value in doing them is incredible. Yeah. But I think we're talking about them in very top layer, cliched, a bit like mental health itself. Yeah, that hashtag is being used within mm-hmm. an inch of its life and we need to really watch that as well. I know? guess I think what's missing with all of these conversations, whether it is mental health, well-being, however you want to label it, is the sort of the grittiness, which is, there's no problem with. Like That is part yeah, yeah. of it. The humour like the, the the different textures that mm. come with it. It isn't one thing. Yeah. We're sort of missing, like you've told numerous funny stories. All of the stories have had a grittiness about them, mm. that there's a discomfort, there's a there's a discovery that you, you don't necessarily want to land on. Mm. Without all that stuff, it's not going to touch the sides. It can't be wishy-washy. It can't be all peace and harmony and love. You know, these are things that might happen because of it or might end up being a part of the result of yeah. doing so. But it's it's not that simple. It's all, <clears throat> you know, it is. It, it's mucky yep. and it's messy and yep. it's untidy. And that is life for That's all of life. us. It really, really is. That's and that, my kitchen right now and that is life. <laughs> you should see my house. I've just moved. It's chaos. Honestly, the boxes everywhere. It's making me anxious thinking about uh, it. I just think, but, I think hurrah to mess, hurrah to, to grittiness, hurrah to having a bit of humour around this conversation. It just needs the levity that, you know, I know it's not all going to be, you know, fun and games, but we've got to include a bit of that into that oh chat. God. But, you know, I think unapologetically we have to because I think, you know, at the end of the day, you you got to. You've got to find lightness in all of these moments because a big part of the problem is, I think, you know, I'm going to say this, it might be slightly controversial, but I think part of the problem around wellness and mental wellness and mental health and all of the hashtags we use some of it's quite earnest and quite heavy yeah. and quite intense. And I think actually, you know, all we're talking about here is we're talking about the human condition. Yep. We're talking about her humanity, our humanity. We're talking about the fact that, you know, sometimes we are all a little bit messed up. But that's absolutely 100% fine because that is part of the human condition. And part of human growth is uh, you cannot grow genuinely. You cannot grow and develop and evolve unless you're willing to work through some of these tougher periods and unless you're willing. So it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong. So I think we need to get much better at thinking, you know, there's actually nothing wrong with any of this. It's just part of being human. And maybe sometimes we can laugh our way through it or not take ourselves so seriously. I mean, Christ, if I took myself seriously in my line of work, I would be in deep shit, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I really have to, and I've learned over the years, you know, because my work has been quite intense over the last 25, 30 years, I've really learned to to look for the lightness Mm. and and actually actively look for it. 
and know when to find it actually and to know those moments where you know when you were talking earlier about you get to the end of the month you know oh my god yeah. I get it I mean I have those moments as well but I'm getting much much better at kind of thinking okay time for you know getting that helicopter so, yeah sorry well, the helicopter and the pilot getting at the, the ready with at, a handsome at, pilot at, zoom out of town at, at the ready I'm in the middle of there regularly it's, it's a beautiful thing well, <laughs> look, I, I knew this would be a bloody enjoyable chat I've loved every minute it's been one of my favourite conversations I've had in a very long time and it's been great I love this book it's exceptional um, like your other books just a a hugely brilliant read so go get it and Owen thank you so much thanks for having me I love that old showbiz helicopter analogy very much indeed get me in that chopper I can genuinely already see how that is going to help me, though. It's going to be useful next time I'm in a bit of a chaotic, overwhelmed state, which (laughs) will probably be later today, quite frankly. Thank you so much to Owen for your time and wisdom. His new book, How to Be Your Own Therapist, is out now. We mentioned EMDR therapy. That's basically an amazing therapy where either you move your eyes or you can use bilateral tapping to help you process trauma or difficult parts of life to overcome challenges and hurdles that you experience today. It's a really powerful, potent therapy that has helped me out massively and Owen specialises in that too. More words of wisdom on the podcast next week, so make sure you're following Happy Place on your podcast platform of choice so you don't miss it. In the meantime, a massive thank you again to Owen, to the producer Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio, and to you brilliant people for listening. Thank you so much, you gorgeous lot. I'll see you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.